So I'm here to welcome you to the kingdom, people. It's kingdom, this is kingdom territory. This is kingdom ground. We're serving the king of kings. Amen. I'm, uh, my name is Greg. If you're visiting, I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, and just happy to be along for this ride. <laughs> Hold on. It, it's, a, it's a cool thing. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. We're doing our verse-by-verse study of this marvelous book. When we come together, you guys, it's not about any kind of entertainment or about a fancy speech or eloquence or anything of the sort. It's really about the kingdom, and we just worship as the kingdom, and we learn as the kingdom, and we pray together as the kingdom. We want to see the kingdom built. Our only interest is, is the kingdom. So we're just kind of going through this without a lot of pomp and circumstance. Let's take it verse by verse. Um, I, I, I want to tell you that I, I put this message together before this weekend, but the message couldn't be more pertinent to what this weekend is, is all about. I also want to just say this. I was going to give a, a little talk here on why we use the TNIV version, um, because uh, I don't have time to now. Uh, but but I, I guess there's a radio show out there that, that some, people, some of you heard, and they were kind of blasting the TNIV version because it's not a literal translation. Okay, I'll say this much. Okay, this is all I'm going to say, though. <laughs> Folks, there's no absolutely literal translation, because if you were literal on every word, you wouldn't translate the meaning. Um, every version out there, even the King James Version, uh, you, you have to, to, make, to, to communicate the meaning, which is the purpose of a translation, you often can't take it word for word, uh, because the word for word just doesn't mean, in our culture, what it meant back then. For example, in the Old Testament, you always hear about God moving people's bowels. Uh, but in our culture, having a bowel movement doesn't mean that any longer. So we talk about moving on people's hearts, you know what I mean? Or, or in some cultures, they talk about God moving your throat, because that's what they see as the center of emotions. So it's not literal, but, but it communicates the meaning. If I say it's raining cats and dogs, and you want to translate what I just said over to French, if you translate it raining cats and dogs, they're not going to know what you're talking about. Uh, I don't know what their expression is. It might be raining lizards and monkeys. Uh, but... But so you, you make those adjustments. It's called dynamic equivalence to communicate the meaning of it. And the whole hubbub about this TNAV version is simply this. In ancient Jewish culture, um, if there was one man in a crowd, you use the male version of the word crowd. So you translate it brothers. Uh, there could be a thousand women, but if there's one man, you use the masculine because men were seen as kind of defining whatever they're a part of. That's how it was. Uh, but is it accurate to say brothers when the intention of the author wasn't to say only, only men? He's referring to a crowd, brother. And so the, the TNIV says it's more accurate to say brothers and sisters because for all we know, there are women there. Or when it says, you know, uh, God made man in his image, it, it, the TNIV says God made humans in their image. Um, and so it's what's called an inclusive uh, translation because when the, the original doesn't mean to specify only males, it includes females. I think it's much more accurate, and I actually think that that's an important thing to do because uh, in Christ there's neither male nor female. Amen? And why there are people who get so upset about this is beyond me. I, I, it's one of those kind of things that just it's like, it's just flabbering. Disagree if you want, but to make that a big issue makes me think there's something else going on. All right, well, well. <laughs> okay, so anyway, that's all I'm going to say. I wasn't going to say anything, but... but the TNAV version, I think, is, is the best uh, version out there. Uh, partly because it is inclusive when the original language, that's the meaning of it, even if it's not the literal word. Okay, let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 56. I want to speak this morning here in the 30 minutes that remain on 
fearing the untamed God. Fearing the untamed God. And let's, let's pray for this. Uh, just agree with me in prayer together here. And as God leads you, pray for the message as it's going forward. Pray for anything else the Holy Spirit tells you to pray for as you're listening to the message. Father, in Jesus' name, we together agree here with the authority you've given to us as kingdom people. On behalf of our kids, we pray for our kids. Lord, they're hearing the gospel message this morning, and we pray you'd open up those tender little hearts and tender little minds to understand and receive Jesus as the Lord. Lord God, be moving over their spirit, be present over there in a thick and powerful way. And for our youth, we pray, Lord God, a strong anointing. Pour out your spirit, rain on them, soak them, saturate them in your love and your power and your passion and your spirit. And here, Lord, as I'm speaking, continue to rain on us as you have been already. Move us, transform us, jolt us. Uh, build your kingdom in us and through us. That is not my responsibility. I will open up my mouth, Lord, but you are the one who has to give a kingdom authority to do kingdom work. And so, Spirit of God, be present here to mold us, to make us, to fill us, to use us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Luke chapter 1, we'll start with verse 57. From the world's best translation, the TNIV version. <laughs> and I'll give a few comments as I'm going along here just to make the passage clear. That's one of the things we like to do here. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she's talking about John the Baptist, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they, were, uh, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him John after his father, Zechariah, which would have been the customary thing to do. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he's supposed to be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who has the name John. Now here's the background so far of this passage. In the Jewish custom, in the ancient world, they were much more relational and communal than we are today. When someone in the town had a baby, everybody came over, and they shared in the joy of this birth. The relatives came from far away. The neighbors who were nearby all came together. And in, in Jewish, it was a Jewish custom to, from the time of the birth uh, until the eighth day when the child was circumcised, they would get together, and they'd pray, and they'd party every night, just celebrating this child that has come into the world. And here they've got particular reasons to celebrate because Elizabeth was past childbearing years, so this was really a supernatural thing. Plus... Uh, she had a son, which in the ancient world meant that the family line would go on. Uh, and so they had a particular reason to, to celebrate here. They would circumcise the child on the eighth day. That was done in the home, and it was a community event. One of the reasons why we're so big on, on community. Uh, the circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And so this was the parents' way of covenanting before the friends and the relatives, as well as before God. They were covenant that they would raise this child in the ways of Yahweh. Okay, they were making a solemn vow, which is what we, we do the same thing today. We have parent dedications uh, for newborn babies um, every couple months, uh, sometimes every month, depending on how many you know, kids we have. Uh, and that's a very important thing, uh, to covenant and, and promise that you're going to raise your child in the ways of the Lord insofar as you're able. Now, the family and friends would often help name the child. It was a community event. But the father always had ultimate authority. Okay, so they would try to persuade the father. Now here they're really surprised because it was the custom to give your son especially a family name to pass on the family heritage. So they thought they'd name the child Zechariah or maybe so sometimes they'd, they'd name the child after the grandfather. But you don't come up with just a brand new name, not in first century Jewish culture. But here Elizabeth says, no, 
He's supposed to be called John. And that's why the people go, what? You don't have anyone in your family named John. So they're surprised. Then it says, they made signs to his father, who's going to have the ultimate vote here, to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Uh, because remember, Zechariah here, he doesn't say, I think we should call him John, or let's think about, no, his name is John. Because the angel said, this is what you're going to name him, and you're not going to talk until you obey uh, the Lord's command and name him John. <laughs> so nine months later, Zechariah has gotten the point. He's willing to obey God at this point. Note here that they made signs to Zechariah. In, in, showing that Zechariah was not only had the inability to speak, but he was deaf. And in the ancient world, we know that sometimes muteness would cover both an inability to talk, but also an inability to hear words. And so Zechariah was both mute and deaf. He uses a writing board. He asked for a writing tablet. And what that was is this. In, 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 uh, um, among peasants in the ancient world, papyri and other writing utensils were, were too expensive. So what they would do is they had kind of a, a primitive etch-a-sketch where they'd have a colored board and they'd have wax on it. And then you just would, would carve in the wax uh, to tell people what you wanted to, to write. So, so it, this, he asked for the etch-a-sketch and he puts on, his name is John. Now let's move on. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were filled with awe. The word there in Greek is phobos. We get the word phobia from it. Its literal meaning is fear. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were, were talking about these things. Whoa, something's happening here. Everyone who heard this wondered about it and asked, what then is this child going to be? What's going on here? For the Lord's hand obviously was with him. The question I want us here to ponder is, what does phobos mean? What does phobos mean? The TNIV, the best translation in the world, translates it awe, which I think by the end of this message you'll, you'll agree is the best translation. But the root meaning is fear. And you've got to wonder, what would these people be afraid of? I mean, they, they seem like they're excited. Uh, God's doing something. But the word that's used is, is phobos, and other translations translate it fear. When they saw that God was at work in Elizabeth and bringing about John the Baptist and, and the supernatural uh, deafening and, and, and uh, uh, silencing of a person and then the release of that, they were struck with awe. This, whatever that means, this phobia, what? Phobos. Um, and yet what were they afraid of? Here's the paradox that you find throughout Scripture. On the one hand, thousands of times we're told to fear God or people are described as being struck with fear when God moved over and over again. So, for example, in Psalms chapter 2, it says that, that he says, Serve the Lord and celebrate his rule with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Proverbs 1, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. For even in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, he says, since you, have, you call on the Father who judges these persons impartially, live out your time as foreigners, because we are foreigners on this earth, right? This is not our home. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. The word there is phobos. The TNIV uh, submits, uh, adds the word reverent to bring out the meaning of it, but the word is phobos, fear. Philippians chapter 2, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, in my presence, now do so more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with phobos and trembling, with fear and trembling. So it seems that we're supposed to fear God to the point of trembling. Now what's paradoxical 
is that there's other scriptures that seem to suggest that we're not supposed to fear God in a trembling sense. Not if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In fact, ironically, in the passage we just read in, in Luke chapter 1, if you look at it, I think it's verse 72 or 74, it says that one of the things that will result from John the Baptist being here is that he'll teach us how to worship the Lord without phobos, without fear. So what is that? Are we supposed to fear God or not? In 1 John, it says this, And we know that and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There is no phobos in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not yet made perfect in love. So the idea here is that as you grow in, in, in your love for God and understand God's love for you, phobos is driven out. And yet we have all these verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament that tell us to fear God. What does this fear mean? What is it to fear God in a biblical kind of way? That's what I'm talking about. Now, let me briefly deal with two extremes that I'm sure are not true and come up with a, what I think is the balanced middle ground for, for what is true. On the one hand, I think it's very clear in Scripture that whatever full boss means, whatever is the sense in which we're supposed to fear God, it isn't for the person whose heart is aligned with God supposed to be a kind of terror. There are people who live in terror of God. They're threatened by God. There's this worry that God is always out to get them. And what's behind that is that they have got a, a terrorizing view of God. The picture of God they have in their head is not the picture of, of God who, who becomes a man and dies on the cross for them. They have sometimes monstrous views of God. Who, that, that installs terror in them. As a kid, I had a terrifying view of God. Uh, just terrifying. I remember in second grade when they uh, gave us the catechism lesson on hell. And man, it, it, was a, it was a lesson. They brought in Mother Superior, the big gun for this one. And she installed you know, the fear of hell in us like you wouldn't believe. And among other things, it was, that was scary, okay? Because it was the brimstone fire and all that stuff. But on top of that, I remember she said, and the, you know, this isn't talked much about any longer in, in, in the Catholic Church, but, but it was then, that, that babies, unbaptized babies, go to hell. Uh, now, it's limbo, so it's not like the torturous kind of hell, but they can't ever go to heaven. And I remember thinking, that's not their fault. The little second-grade theologian that I was. I was like, wait a minute. I remember asking the nun, you know, how can God do that? There's little babies. They didn't ask to be born, and now they're going to, you know, they're not allowed into heaven, and, and, and they can't ever be with their parents. And I was just, like, crushed by this. And I remember that, that you know, she answered very sternly, um, it's not for us to question God. Now, what that did was this. In my little second-grade theological mind, it's like, whoa. Uh, if that's possible, as odd as that seems, anything is possible. In other words, this isn't going to make any sense, is it? Uh, and that scared the kajibers out of me. And I just want to know, what are the rules? I, okay, I, I, don't, I obviously am never going to make sense out of this, so just tell me what to do to stay out of that place. Uh, uh, what are the prayers I got to pray? What are the rules I got to do? But I am terrified. And as a young kid, I was terrified. Now, it didn't transform me because fear never does. It would temporarily modify my behavior, but I was a behavioral problem kid, and so I kept on getting in trouble. It's just that I was convinced I was going to hell for it. Fear never really transforms from the inside. It might curb behavior a little bit, but it doesn't transform us. 
But I don't think that that's what Phobos is supposed to be, this terror of God. There are people who live that way. I met a student one time at Bethel College uh, 15, 16 years ago now, I guess it was. And, and she just lived in, in, on the verge of a nervous breakdown because of her picture of God. Uh, she had this idea, and I know exactly where she got it, uh, but uh, uh, she, it came out of Ro- her, her interpretation of Romans 9, which is, I think, exactly the wrong interpretation, but I can't go into that right now. But she had this idea, this picture, a movie that she ran, of God having a lump of clay. And God makes the good people, and God makes bad people. And then God eternally crushes the bad people for being the way that he made them. And then he turns to the good people and says, Now, aren't you glad I didn't do that to you? And the good people are, are, gonna, are supposed to say, It's altogether lovely. It's altogether beautiful. It's altogether great. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard of. Now, her problem was this. She could say that, and she did, because she didn't. To not say that means you might be one of the bad people. Uh, predestined to go to eternal hell. So she would say that, but she knew on some level she didn't really believe that, and that terrified her. Maybe she's not one of the elect. She didn't get the luck of the draw, and, and so she's living in terror, terrorized by this bizarre you know, universe that she's born into, where she might go to eternal hell, and, and, and it was destined before she was ever born. It terrorized her. Whatever full boss means, I don't think it means that. Because how, do you po- how can you possibly live in passionate love for a God who terrorizes you? How can you live in joy, like the Bible says we're supposed to have, with a God who terrorizes you? How do you have the peace that passes understanding with a, with a God who seems so arbitrary and cruel who terrorizes you? Most importantly, how do you confess that God is decisively and finally revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for the people who crucified him, praying with his last breath, Father, forgive them? How do you reconcile the terrorizing view of God with that? Uh, I, 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 whatever Phobos means, I don't think it means that. How, how, do you, how, are, how, how are we to be transformed? If, if our view of God is, if our motive is terrorizing, what I found is that when I got a lovely picture of God, it transformed me from the inside out in a way that terror never did. Uh, it, it changed, when I, when I finally got a picture of God that made me want to live for Him, want to serve Him, want to bow down before Him, now I could begin to get out of the strongholds that I had all my life. But the terrorizing view just didn't do that. Whatever Phobos means, I submit to you, it doesn't mean terror. At least not for a child of God. Here's another thing I'm sure it doesn't mean. The other extreme. Whatever Phobos means, it doesn't mean nothing. <laughs> Which is, I think, how a lot of people in our culture take it. It means something. Something very, very important because we find it all over the place in the Bible. We live in a culture, I submit to you, that has completely lost any concept, on the whole, any concept of the fear of God. Most people live their life and make their decisions without thinking, what might might my creator think of this? Uh, They act like their life is really their own. Now, all the statistics show that that most people still believe in God. But it doesn't seem to intersect in their life in any significant way. There's not a reverence for for the fact that you didn't create yourself and your life is not your own and you just might have to give an account of your life. Uh, people, there's, a, there's an irreverence there. God has become so common in the culture. Um, uh, you know, it's just sort of a buddy-buddy sort of thing. He's, he, God is just one of us, just a slob like the rest of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home, as, as one, song, one song put it. This is why we, we have desecrated God. 
To desecrate means, it comes from the combination of the word de and sacred. You, you, you undo something that's sacred. You make it common. You make it menial. You make it every day. It's just whatever. And, uh, and God, the concept of God has become that in, in, our, in our culture. This is why you'll never find me being a real passionate proponent of making sure that we keep God everywhere in the public. Make sure it's on our coins and make sure that we can say his name before football games. Whatever you think about that, my passion is that I want to, you know, the problem is that it's too common. It's like an everyday thing for people. It's like crosses today. Once upon a time, a cross was something significant. Having a cross on your body meant that your life was crucified with Christ Jesus. It was sacred. It had meaning. It was profound. Now porn stars wear them. Everybody wears them. It's a little decorative symbol. It's a demonic way of desecrating something holy. It becomes common. And the reverence that ought to be there with the cross, with God, ends up being utterly and completely dissipated. And I wonder sometimes if that hasn't happened to some degree, in fact, to a significant degree in the church, where God's just become sort of common. Uh, God is, we, we have the intimacy down, and that's a good thing. But God's sort of big buddy in the sky, which is why sin's really no big deal, you know, because he'll forgive us, that's his job. Uh, and, and getting radical, living your, that, that's not a big deal. Hey, come on, he, he's my best bud. You know, we got a little Jesus in our pocket. We carry around and we put on display when it's convenient. We pack him up when it's convenient. And it's just our little best bud Jesus who's always around us when we need him. But otherwise, he uh, doesn't make any real demands on our life. He's the great granddaddy in the sky who just kind of pats us on the head and, and says, go your way. No sense of awesomeness, no sense of reverence that is there. Even in our language sometimes. People say this all the time. Oh, my God. And see, in the Old Testament, you didn't use the word God. You kept it sacred. And I'm not trying to get legalistic and prudish here, but it says something about our minds. Oh, my God. Uh, like, it's synonymous with, oh, isn't that cool? God is, like, so cool. Like, God, and, and we have God t-shirts and God, all that stuff. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but when it becomes this common language, this common part of the air we breathe, we lose the sacred. There's not that reverence, a sort of holy fear at the awesomeness of God. Yes, God is intimate. God is loving. God is, in fact, friend. But the fear language of the Bible means something. And at the very least, it means this. We must never, ever forget that God is God. That God is God, and we are not. God is Lord, and we are not. God is sovereign, and we are not. God is holy, and we are not. God is transcendent, and we are not. We're called to submit to God. God is not called to submit to us. We're called to obey God. God does not obey us like some genie in a bottle. Uh, we're called to worship God. God does not worship us. God is God, and we've got to preserve the godness of God with awe, with reverence even with a sense of trembling at the almightiness of God. In, in Luke chapter 1, the passage we read, there was this sense of awe, Phobos, because God showed up. And that, when that happens, if, if you have eyes to see, it should strike awe in you. The almighty God is at work here. Now, we're not sure what exactly he's doing, but he's up to something, and that is marvelous. And, 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 and we, 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 we need to revere that and keep that sacred. This is not ordinary. This is extraordinary because God is here and God is in this place. If our eyes are open, we ought to see reminders all around us of the awesomeness, the transcendence, the godness of God. It's all around us. When you gaze up at the stars, it ought to be a reminder uh, of, of the absolute 
unspeakable transcendence of God. The, the heavens declare the glory of God. I want, you to just, I want us to get our minds around us a little bit, though we can't get our minds around it. But, but just consider this. The universe, they tell me, is about 14 billion light years across. Now, there are some theoreticians now that say it's actually 150 uh, 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 billion light years across once you take in the rate of expansion. But let's not worry about that right now. It's really, really, really big. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles. And the distance that light travels in a year is called a light year. It's roughly 5 trillion uh, miles. Uh, if you were driving 70 miles an hour, it would take you about 10 million years to cross that distance. Uh, it, it, that, that's how far light goes in a year. And the universe is 14, if not 150 uh, light years uh, 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 across. There are 125 billion, as, we, as far as we know right now, and I think this is really just the tip of the iceberg, but there are 150 billion galaxies in the universe that we know of right now. Now, that's quadrupled from about a decade ago, and I suspect in another 10 years, it will be far more than this. But so far as we know right now, uh, they estimate 120 billion galaxies. Each of those galaxies has, on average, uh, um, 100 billion, 100 billion stars, which means the total number of stars is 125 billion times 100 billion, which is 12.5 with 20 zeros after it. 12.5 to the 20th power. In other words, I figured this out. It's 12,500 billion billion. And I looked it up, and there's actually a number that big. It would be 12.5 sextillion. In more technical terms, it's a whole bunch of stars. And when you begin to think about that, God spoke all of them into existence. Let them be. And he holds them in existence right now. Some of those stars are so big, they make ours look something like a freckle. They're just humongous. There's one star they're investigating now. Its name is LBV 1806-20. Real catchy. And they estimate that the size of this star is about the, the distance between our star and Jupiter. That is the one star. It's, it shines about 10 million times, at least 10 million times as bright as our present star. There's, there's 12.5 to the 20th power number of these things out there. God spoke them into existence. God holds them into existence, which is why the word says that the heavens declare, they shout the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Consider the, what kind of mind and what kind of power lies behind this universe that we're a part of. And all over, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you look at something and it takes your breath away. That's what I mean by awe. It just takes your breath away. Consider the heavens. Uh, I, 20 years ago or so, I was up uh, in the northern woods and I was doing a Bible camp. And, and we're out in the woods. There's somebody here, I don't know if you still go to this church, but you were at this camp. I met you a couple years ago. But we were uh, having this retreat, and the, we were out having a fire about one in the morning, and all of a sudden the northern lights showed up. 
And even the people who had lived there for 30 years who ran the camp said they never saw it like this. And folks, we were surrounded by an emerald city. We finally had to lay on the ground because you couldn't, you know, people come saying, over there, over there. So we just laid on the ground to catch it all in. And the, the sky was on fire with all of these different colors. And just seeing something this big move across the sky like that so fast, it, it, it made you feel like you were being crushed. It was the awesome, the magnitude of it, the grandeur of it, the beauty of it. It made you laugh. It made you cry. And what was going on is God was just, the, the, the artist was showing off a little bit. He's just sort of like, oh, watch this. And for about 20 minutes, it blew us, blew us away. God is that to the infinite power. God is God, the mighty God, the beautiful God, the transcendent God. And if our eyes are open, every square inch of creation proclaims the glory of God. You take any square inch of creation and it, you get into the, the quantum particles that are going on right now. Right now there are billions of quantum particles flying through you and you're nothing but a, a structured, intelligent design of these random quantum particles. It's absolutely mind-boggling. The brain blows you away when you begin to think about the magnitude and the beauty of the brain. Uh, 10 billion neurons connected by 10 trillion synaptic connections. The complex, there are more synaptic connections in your brain than there are a number of stars in the universe. And I just told you how many numbers of stars there are in the universe. Which means in one very real sense, your brain is more complex than the universe. It's this absolute masterpiece. Uh, if you added up those dendrites together, uh, even though they're all just a fraction, microscopic long, it would circle the globe five times. You take a quarter, any quarter-sized segment of a brain, and it's more complex than, than the entire global internet system. Right now, all of that's being activated as you're decoding my words. It's, it's, a, it's a stroke of genius. And when you consider the heavens, and when you consider the brain, and when you consider quantum particles, when you just open your eyes, you see an evidence of a mind, of a power, of an intelligence that goes beyond anything we could possibly, possibly conceive of or imagine. All of creation tells you, if you, if you need it to tell you, if it's not just intuitive, that God... The God who is the true God is utterly unfathomable. He's incomprehensible. He's inscrutable. He's unbelievable. He's uh, inconceivable. He's unimaginable. He's indescribable. He's unthinkable. He's inexplicable. And if you love him, he's simply irresistible. He's God, the mighty God, the transcendent God. And there's one more thing I want to tell you, which if that doesn't take your breath away, this has got to take your breath away. That God, capital G, the creator, capital C, who created every quantum particle and holds it into existence right now, the God who created every neuron in your brain and allows you to think every thought you're thinking right now and, and breathe every breath you're breathing right now, the God who spoke all those stars into existence by going like this, and he holds it all there right now, that God who, for whom the Bible says the whole cosmos is a little tiny thing in the palm of his hands, that God, the mighty God, capital G, creator, capital C, there's a little dust, dust particle somewhere in the universe with a little bunch of people on it who thought they were God, and, and, and they wanted to reject the true God. But this God didn't snuff them out. This God, the Bible says, loved them, was passionate for them, and patiently worked with them throughout history in the most bizarre kind of waves. 
And eventually he became one of them, became a human being, born in a little manger, lived a virtually homeless life throughout his ministry and ended up being crucified on the cross and took all the, the, the sin of these little tiny people on this little tiny planet in this little tiny galaxy, one of the 125 billion, you know. And, and he took all of their sin and he put it on himself and he experienced what is absolutely antithetical to himself, which is sin. He suffered what is opposite himself, which is hell. He experienced that. And why? Because this God, capital G, creator, capital C, this God is passionately in love with you and with me. That's got to take our breath away. What kind of mind, what kind of power, what kind of intelligence, and what kind of heart are we dealing with? It, it, it's awesome. It's mind-boggling. It's overwhelming. And when you see the stars and when you consider the brain and when you consider the wonders of nature and the mountains and look around and then when you consider Calvary, unless you are altogether spiritually dead, there's got to be something in you that is moved to worship, to just say, this is infinitely beyond me. This is other than me. This is holy. I bow down in absolute reverent, trembling adoration at this one who brings all into being and did this on my behalf. That is called worship. And that, I submit to you, is the biblical concept of phobos. It, it, is, it, it is trembling at the almightiness of God who, though he's almighty, did this for you, which actually intensifies his almightiness. The paradox of, of fearing God from a kingdom perspective is this. God overwhelms us, takes our breath away, even makes us tremble if our eyes are open to the reality of things. He does that by showing us his grandeur and his, his unthinkable, indescribable, inscrutable, inscrutable, mysterious power and intelligence. But at the same time, he becomes so small and dying on a cross for you and me. Which means we shouldn't be terrorized because we know the character of the one who made the whole thing. And he's for us and not against us. He doesn't want to crush us. He wants to save us. He doesn't want to go into eternity without us. He loves us and we must embrace him as intimate, as close, as friend. And yet at the same time, never forget, as we look at Jesus Christ, for the kingdom person, all you know about God is defined in the person of Jesus Christ. But that should never, ever make us sort of casual, buddy, slob on the bus kind of mindset. Because to look at Jesus accurately is to know that he is the one who created all that. Amen. And holds your mind and your brain into existence. Never, the beauty, the intimacy of God is all the more poignant and beautiful because when we remember it against the backdrop of God's almightiness, and the almightiness becomes all the more magnificent when we consider it in the light of the smallness of the incarnation of what God has done for us. It's that paradoxical quality of bringing this majesty and tenderness together that constitutes fearing God. Yesterday morning, yesterday morning, um, man, we had this meeting. It started off with a foot washing thing. Would someone tell the children's church we're going to go over a little bit? <laughs> I, I just want to, I want to express this. We had a foot washing ceremony, and, and that's, I had never been a part of one of these. But someone was washing my feet, actually a few people as they were praying for me, and that's so humbling. It's just so humbling. And then I thought of John 13, which is where this ceremony comes out of, where it says that Jesus, knowing he'd come from God and was going to God, wrapped a robe around himself and got down on his feet and began to wash, uh, got down on his knees, and began to wash the feet of his disciples, his yeah. dirty, smelly feet. Yeah. 
the very people who he knew were going to betray him. The God of this universe did what these folks are doing to me, knowing that they were going to betray him before the, the next morning. If that doesn't take your breath away, I don't know what does. The God of this universe who does all that, has all rights, washes our feet on Calvary. He, he comes to be a servant of us to restore us and washes our feet. And then later on in the day, God showed up. And I can just say it like this. When God showed up, the presence of God just fell on us. Instantaneously, we're sitting around here, and the atmosphere changed, and there was such a thick, thick sense of God's presence. It took your breath away. We just, uh, Derek, uh, Brenda's husband, just said, I'm being forced to the ground by the presence of God, the Shekinah glory. And we all got on our faces or on our knees and, and we, just, we just called out to God. And it wasn't a terror, terrorizing thing at all. It wasn't like, don't crush us. No, because we know who he is. He died for us on Calvary. But there was this awesomeness of God as he made clear what had been foggy, as he, as he, as he just, in his genius, his, his mind-boggling, unfathomable genius, as he shows us what he's up to here at this church. It was like God is in this place. And it's, I, I trembled. I was shaking. I'm still kind of shaky from it. It's like God is here. He's real. And God is in this place. We're in the presence of God. And, and th- that just evokes this, a kind of a dread, but it's not a terror. It's like, it's just a reverence, an adoration. A, you are God, the almighty God, and you're so far beyond anything we can grasp. But at the same time, it, it, the tenderness was there as he's, now he's saying, look at your partner's with me and I'm inviting you on this unique thing that I'm doing. I felt at one and the same moment, so small, but so significant. I felt God so close as lover, but also as awesome Lord. I felt him as in his sovereign presence, but also as, 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 as my, my groom. Uh, there was this incredible, indescribable experience that was at once absolute majesty, grandeur, awesomeness, and tenderness. Love. He was the lion who the book of Revelation says is also the lamb. And those two things don't normally go together, but in God they do. And we must always hold both together. Holding both together. I'll close with this. I'll close with this. Um, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis describes this so well uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you haven't read the book, read it. And it's coming out with a show version of The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. But Aslan is this lion who, who plays God in this. And he always inspires the, these two qualities. A sense of dread but also a sense of familiarity among those who are open to it. He, he inspires a sense of awesomeness, but tenderness. Uh, he kind of frightens people, but then he also you know, invites them in, 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 into a friendship. Um, it, it, it's this weird, unique kind of combination. He's an untamed lion because God is an untamed God. You can never box him in. Don't think you ever totally got him down. He goes where he wants to go, comes when he wants to come, leaves when he wants to leave. He's a God who does his own thing. He's holy. He's sacred. He's separate. For those whose, heart, whose hearts aren't aligned with him, they don't see the tender, the lamb. They only see the lion and they're terrified. But for those whose heart is aligned with him, they see both. He's untamed. Never make him just buddy-buddy. On the other hand, He's passionately in love with us, and there's this friendship. I, ask, I end by asking you, how do you see Aslan? Um, if your heart is not aligned with God, the God of this universe, you have reason to be scared. 
Not because God is ugly and arbitrary and torturous and monstrous. No, he's altogether lovely and beautiful. He died for you. He, he wants to live eternally with you. He would do anything and has done everything possible for that to happen. He's not terrifying in and of himself. Awesome, yes. Mind-boggling. Reverence, yes. But see, to declare war on God is a terrifying thing to do. Do you really want to declare war on that God who created that universe? Do you want to set yourself against that mind and that power? Especially in the light of what he's done for you. And you need to know that if your heart isn't surrendered to him, you are to that degree at war with him. I encourage you this morning, when we're done, to come up here to my right and your left. If, you're, if you've never surrendered to God, to do that right now. Get your, get your heart right with him so you can begin to enjoy the lamb quality of God. For those of us whose hearts are surrendered to him, keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ, who is the only revelation of the true God, the definitive revelation. And that means he's close, he's intimate, he, 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 he is our best friend. But to know him truly is to know that he's not just one of us. He's God. Amen. Holy, majestic, transcendent, untamed. He is God, we are not. He is sovereign, we are not. He is holy, we are not. And we must always, always honor that and bow down in humble adoration of the one true creator, God. Amen. I want to close this way. Uh, I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. Can we all stand? I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. And uh, uh, if you have any need that you haven't had prayed for yet or something's going on, the Spirit's stirring in your heart, come forward and get prayer. I encourage you to do that. If you're here tonight or this morning and your heart's, you're, you're at war with the God of this universe, that's a scary, scary spot to be. And I'm just saying it because it's fact. And I encourage you to come up here to my right and your left. There's a person who would just love to lead you and introduce you into uh, our, our Lord Jesus Christ and get right with the Aslan who runs the universe. I want to end with this song, but I need to also say, uh, you know, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And those of you who have kids, could you go and, and pick up a kids? And if you want to come back here uh, to be in the presence of God, do that. If you want to just stay in the presence of God for a while, do that. If you want to come forward for prayer, do that. I want to let God do everything that God wants to do. But I want to end with praying and then proclaiming His holiness. Father, you are holy, you are glorious, you are great, you are almighty, unthinkable, indescribable, mysterious. And we just honor you in your godness. Almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth, we honor you. And we lift you up and we commit to walking out of here, exalting you in our life. In Jesus' name we pray.